Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore and the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I'm Ann Stickney, one of two lore-focused writers from Blizzard Watch, and I've got both of my wonderful co-hosts with me today. First up, eh, let's introduce him first because we haven't in a while. That would be our shaman columnist, but he's also a lore aficionado, Joe Perez. Hey, Joe. Well, hello there, and I've been screaming about shaman lately, so yay. Yeah. Appropriate. Yeah, I've heard some things. Yeah, I have uh, I have some interesting thoughts on what's on the PTR and uh, what's going to be in our future. So, <laughs> well, that's not necessarily lore related so much as no shaman. Darn it! But I do and love lore. I think I think we talked about shaman a little bit actually on last week's regular show, uh, the Blizzard Watch podcast for people that don't listen to both shows. Anyway, speaking of which, the co-host on that show is also our other co-host on this show, and he would be our other lore focused writer over on Blizzard Watch, Matt Rossi. Hey, Rossi. Hello, everyone. How? It's still Halloween, so I'm talking like a creepy mo- movie host, I guess. Oh, I-, I thought maybe it was just the hours yeah, and was... hours you've spent entrenched in Assassin's yeah. Creed Odyssey. Yeah, pretty much. I've I moved to ancient Greece this week. Uh, I haven't been out of it much, other than to work. You know, write <laughs> stuff for the site, do my emissary, and wow, and then it's right back into the Greek mines, so to speak. I am still working my way through Horde side stuff. Um, I've reached the midway point where stuff has started to hit the fan, as it were. Um, And I'm kind of fascinated and can't stop playing. So I, yeah, I just need to gun through and get through the rest of it because I'm involved now. I'm super involved and invested in what's going on. And I'm very upset about what's going on. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens with that. I, I, I think that probably our next episode we're going to be talking about horde stuff more in depth, possibly. Yes. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so this week we decided to go ahead and dip back into the mailbag because you guys have been emailing us, and if you have an email for the show that you would like with some lore points that you would like us to discuss, you can send that to podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Just put lore watch in the subject line so that we know that it's intended for this show and not the other one. Um, our first email is from Janos, who's a Torin Druid of Sourfang US, who says, Hello, Bureau of Meteorology. As you know, the Sunwell was restored by Valen using the Heart of Muru, imbuing it with both arcane and light energy. And we now know that the Naru have a light void cycle, and that Maru going all void mode wasn't just because he was drained of light by the Blood Knights and Kael'thas. From a lore perspective, is it possible that Maru's essence could, quote-unquote, go dark again and change the Sunwell to a source of void energy? What would this mean for Blood Elf Paladins and Priests? From Janos, Torn Druid of Sourfang. P.S. We have Night Elves, Nightborn, and Void, Elf, void Elves already. If the Sun Void Well affected Blood Elves as a, ra- as a race, I think Blizzards are running out of Dark Elf names. Um, probably they're running out of Dark Elf names. I, I mean, we've got Void Elves, and that's essentially kind of what you're going at here. The Void Elves have been just pretty much trucking with the Void. That's their thing. That's what they've been doing um, without the Sunwell going all dark. But um, what do you guys think about this? Do you think it's possible for Muru's essence to go dark again? I mean, whatever they want to do is possible. I mean, they could decide tomorrow they wanted to write that and that's what would happen. I don't think it fits what we've been told about Naru. It's not, we've been told several times now that whilst the light dark cycle thing can happen and it is part of their life cycle, it's not like, it doesn't. It's not like a cocoon that they all automatically go into. You could have a Naru never go dark. It's just they can do so. It is part of what their their relationship to the light is. But they don't just happen. You know what I mean? Like it's been said, it's rare. It it doesn't happen often. Yeah, and it also depends on whether or not it's linked to like if it's a because we don't know if it's linked to like just because of how they're structured or if it's the expenditure of energy or what really is the sort of catalyst to push them in there. We just know that they, they can get there and we have multiple different ways that they've gotten there. So, I mean, if we've reignited the Sunwell, which if I'm remembering correctly and correct me if I'm wrong, it wasn't necessarily just taking the essence and using the essence in place of the Sunwell. It was essentially using it almost like a car starter and getting it back online. So it was sort of like the jumping point for the the, the, the dead Naru was the jumper cables. <laughs> yeah, kind of like it, it's it's the best analogy I can really think of because like the energy was there it was just faltering right like it was there and failing 
and being consumed and like not, you know, not doing its thing anymore. And it's, it's very similar. So to me, if they just use the energy to sort of jumpstart things and sort of get things going, if that's what Velen did, then I don't see it going dark. But again, like Rossi said, they can do whatever the heck they want. The implication at the time was that Muru was dead. Muru is not in the Sunwell. He used yeah, to be. It was like a chunk of Muru. Yeah, like the, Muru's last, you know, last essence was used to to ignite the Sunwell into a new configuration. Muru himself is dead, so it's not a Naru in there. It's just the light energy from him. It's actually very similar to what you see Velen do uh, in the alternate Draenor, when he basically he flips uh, Kara from Void Cycle to Light Cycle instantly by converting himself into pure light. He dies. For that you know? matter, it's kind of what they did with the Ashbringer, right? Because they had a chunk of Void Rock, they shoved a bunch of light into it and turned it into this source of light energy. Yeah? Yeah, it seems very similar. We don't actually It's like they know. pulled an Ashbringer with the Sunwell. Yeah, so could it happen? If they decide that it's going to happen, then it could happen. But it doesn't feel like it, the, the Sunwell has anything to do with the Naru light cycle. Uh, but if it did happen, then yeah, you just have a bunch of Void Elves. It would just be everybody would be a Void Elf. <laughs> Which, what would Lorthamar do about that? He'd be real mad. He'd be super mad. I mean, it's not that the dude doesn't have enough to deal with already. I I always had an issue with what they did with the Sunwell as, as far as how they brought it back. Because it's not the same thing that it used to be anymore. It's It's kind of like a vessel for the light which it wasn't it wasn't previously and sure you had like blood elf priests you had blood elf priests prior to the sun, fall of the sunwell and everything and they were using that kind of energy they thought the light had abandoned them so they turned to other methods to obtain that kind of power so that they could continue healing and that sort of thing but i just i don't know i think that once anaru is dead I mean, I would assume anyway that once Anaru is dead, that void and light cycle is no longer like that's not it's not relevant anymore. You know what I mean? Well, we we do know that if you kill Anaru, there the fragments of them still resonate with both the light and with the void. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we kind of had we that with Syria. Yeah, the Netherlight Crucible. So, is that what's going on with the Sunwell? I honestly have no idea at this point. I don't know. The original Sunwell was just arcane power. Uh, it was effectively, they took a piece, they took the vial that, uh, I don't, I want to say Kale, but Kale only got it, Kale inherited it, didn't he? Like it originally came from Dathramar. Didn't Dathramar have some of it? The, uh, he had Well of Eternity water. Yeah, it was. He used that to make the Sunwell, which he changed. Like instead it of. It was being, Illidan's leftovers pretty much, right? Yeah. And instead of it being like the pure Well of Eternity type water, they, they altered it to be resonant with the sun because they wanted to give a giant middle finger to Dynasis and the, the night and the moon and all that stuff. Uh, and Elune, they abandoned Elune, obviously. So there's there's a lot of possible things that could happen. We don't really know, because we don't know enough about how the Sunwell really works. Right. But in terms of... I don't see... It doesn't have the Naru Daylight Cycle. I think it's fairly safe to say that. It even react, it reacts very negatively to the presence of the Void. Um, when Alaria goes in that room, the Sunwell is not happy. The Sunwell itself, you know, is like, it doesn't, it's not like a cat, you know, it's hissing at someone it doesn't like. It's like you brought the wrong thing in and it has an immediate reaction. It's like positive and negative react off each other. Is that the light working at that though? Or do you think that's like some last vestige of Muru who remembers what happened with the whole void thing and didn't if, appreciate it? If he's alive, I mean, in order for that to happen, there'd have to be some presence of Muru in there. And we don't know if there is. If Muru is dead, 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 then no, it's just the Sunwell reacting. But that's an, that, there we go. It's another possibility. The problem with this question is we really can't definitively answer it. It's fun to think about, though. I don't. I'm just saying it's we, we can't give you an answer, man. It, it just can't be done. Yeah, I I think what bothers me the most about the whole Sunwell thing is that it was the Drunai that came in and did all of this. And we haven't seen really much in the way of contact between those two people since, except for in Warlords. In Warlords, we had a character who, instead of, you know, going to help the Horde and the garrison or whatever, the first thing that they did was they booked it over to Akendown and to help the Draenei out there. 
Um, and that's the subject, actually, of our next email here. Uh, this one is from Ma- Maxla Blastrig, a goblin of no fixed abode on the Sisters of Loon server, who says, Hello, Blizzard Watchers. If there's one character I've never tired of questing with or for, it's Lady Liadrin of the Blood Knights. Her search for redemption and the determination to lend her strength to other people's efforts for justice has always made her a welcome sight in any zone I find her. Paladin, commander, ambassador, adoptive parent, blood elf, horde, and awesome heroine in non-revealing armor. But I've heard that there is lore for her days before the Blood Knights and haven't yet found a way to read it for myself. Could Lorewatch help put this remarkable character into context um what you are looking for maxla is a book called paragons um i believe it's only an ebook i don't think that it was released as a print edition or if it was released as a print edition i'm not sure if it did in the u.s um there is a novella in there called blood of the highborn by mickey nielsen who used to work with blizzard he was one of the main story people over there and it kind of tells the story of liadren but it also talks about Lorthamar and everything that went on before the fall of the Sunwell during the fall of the Sunwell and immediately after. Um, Rossi, you've read this one, right? Oh, yeah. You want to chat about Liadrin? Okay, well, um, first thing to know about Liadrin is that uh, her parents were killed when she was very young by the the Amani, the Amani trolls who live just south of, of Silvermoon. Uh, really weirdly named place, Silvermoon. Uh, every so often it hits me that they named the place Silvermoon and they're, you know, they abandoned everything about Alun except the name of their city. It's like the Sunwell yeah. and all this other stuff. And then they named the city after the moon. Yeah. <laughs> just... But at any rate, um, her, she was taken in by a friend of her parents, uh, who's a priest, uh, Van, Van, I can't remember Vandalore, I think Vandalore. Yeah. It was high uh, priest Vandalore. And, uh, Vandalore basically her on the path to being a priest and she was a priest uh when she was you know when she was younger and uh she decided that she was going to follow that path because he followed the path and she'd been to like she'd done stuff as a priest for a while and then in the in the story blood of the highborn you've got her um her apprentice whose name i can't remember i'm sorry uh drakhan drathir the the magister and uh Galal, Galal was the apprentice, by the way. Okay. Uh, and they they went down to, uh, they were checking up something. They were checking a runestone. That's right. One of the runestones was messed up. This is really hard for me to remember. Wow, it shouldn't be. But they, they got captured by the Amani while trying to figure out what was wrong. The runestones were magical stones that the uh, Blood Elves, back then they were the High Elves, had put up around their uh, their kingdom to keep anyone from entering it. And they worked against just about everybody, including the, the Amani the trolls those were the things that sylvanas was using to keep the scourge at bay when they attacked initially and uh there was something wrong with the runestones they were malfunctioning and uh so darkon was sent out with uh with um liadrin and her her apprentice and they got captured by the amani including it was zuljin himself good old zuljin who had them brought to him because he wanted to question them uh, he was he was all sorts of down for finding weaknesses in the runestones because the Amani wanted to kill all the high elves they had for for at this point millennia they've been fighting since the the uh, high elves ancestors arrived in the eastern kingdoms so he starts torturing them and I think didn't he have Lorthamar yeah yeah he yeah, had, he Lorthamar. had Lorthamar with him yeah he'd already captured Lorthamar and so they're all there and. Finally, um, Liadrin is the one who gets them out of this because he's he's been torturing them. Uh, and so he's, you know, Zuljin is torturing the, the four of them and she manages to tap into the, the light and use it to basically send the pain he'd been making them feel right back into him. And then they managed to escape. I think it was Darkon who actually got them out of there. But um, I want to say that Darkon teleported them out of there. But that she had a sense. vision too. She had a vision while they were there and they were captured. Um, yeah. She was enthralled by a tiki mask, if I remember right. And there were there were three visions, and each there was one for each of her companions. So Darkan, she saw him as an animate corpse, which is funny because that's exactly what happened to him uh, later on. Galel was in this twisted kind of deformed state that she didn't quite understand, and Lorthamar was writhing in flame. All three of those would eventually 
come to pass. She just didn't know it yet. Um, but yeah, they teleported out of there. Dark Darkon managed to like get the last of his energy together and boop him out of the place. But yeah, that's that was basically her life before the coming of the scourge. Um, she was a priest, and you know she she did went on missions for her people and you know, did various priest things. But when the scourge came, uh, she was trying to help defend you know Quelthalos. And she couldn't keep up with like, you know, the, the sheer volume of, of, you know, undead coming in and the casualties were, were just too much. And when they got to the Sunwell, they, they took it out and everybody started feeling sick and she lost her faith. She was like, how could the light let this happen? How could the light let one of its champions turn into a monster? How could the light allow this to happen to my people? And her faith broke. She just didn't. She didn't believe anymore. And so, and keep for in mind while, that during all of this, she actually saw King Anisterion die. Yeah, uh, she saw him die at Arthas's hands, I believe. Yeah. Uh, um, so it's simple there were a of lot people. of yeah. There were a lot of like psychological blows that went along with the whole. Hey, Sunwell is no longer working, functioning properly. Um, they lost the Sunwell, which meant that they lost the arcane power that had suffused them all their lives. They had never lived, you know, many of them had never lived a day without the Sunwell's presence. Because the the the, the, the Hiles were very long-lived. They weren't immortal. It had been 10,000 years or so since they'd arrived in the Eastern Kingdoms. The generation, they, you know, they've had three or four generations, all of them under the influence of the Sunwell. I mean, even like Anisterion, who is very old, is like the third or fourth king. Um, they've had multiple t- generations pass and they'd never known anything but the Sunwell. So when that goes out, they immediately start feeling the, the, you know, the loss of it. And then you see, you know, all your people's heroes die. You see, you know, the, the, the center of your country is carved right in and the Sunwell is destroyed. The Sunwell is a symbol of your people. And you, you, you see all and this happening. And your happen. king's You're, dead. All yeah, of this king's stuff. dead. Um, the, you know, she had to witness all this and she couldn't save anybody. And there you go. She basically lost her faith. She was like, I can't, you know, how can I believe in something that allows this to happen? Uh, how can I believe in the you know, purity and power of the light when it, this kind of thing happens? And the fun part was that she basically didn't do a whole heck of a lot after that. Um, Kael'thas showed up and called them the blood elves and they took that name and everything. Um, and they were, basically preparing for an attack on the Sunwell and everything else. Liadrin volunteered to help with it, but she volunteered to help with it by picking up a weapon and like asking Lorthamar and his maiden to train her how to use the weapon. She she had no interest in the light at that point. She just wanted to learn how to fight. Um so when Kale thought oops sorry I was just gonna say like that, that that's also really analogous to like the birth of paladins for humans too. Yeah. Yeah, it's, the way it's that, really neat. The way that paladins worked with hu- hum- humanity, as far as that was concerned, was that warriors were taught the ways of the light and priests were taught how to fight like a warrior. And they became kind of this m- mash of priest and warrior. And that was how paladins were created. So Liadrin kind of did the same thing where she was a priest, but she had tossed all of that light stuff to the side. She didn't want it anymore. She didn't care. Um, it wasn't well, until... We did forget something. We, we forgot one thing. What? Um, when the second war broke out... Yeah. Not the third war, the second war. Liadrin was one of the ones that captured Zul'jin. Oh, yeah. And she was there when they tortured Zul'jin and cut off... You know, they, they took his eye. They were torturing Zul'jin. And it was um, Haldoran, Brightwing, and her were there. And um, she was like... Remember, he tortured her. And and she was actually uncomfortable with how much they were torturing him. She was like, um, Haldoran, maybe we could just kill him. Like, we don't have to keep doing this. We could just kill him. We, there's not, there's no point to this anymore. And that's it, because they wouldn't kill him. That's how he got the, the Amani raided, injured Haldoran and rescued Zul'jin because he wouldn't let Haldoran wouldn't listen to her when she was trying to get him to stop torturing him. So that's if, if Liadrin had her way, Zul'jin had been dead. And there never would have been a, a, any Zul'jin in, in the in Burning Crusade. So there's and that's. Keep in mind that it wasn't. I mean, yes, she wanted to kill him, but also she didn't feel like the whole torturing thing was a terribly good idea. No, like she, was she totally... showed kind of a compassion even then. Um, it's, 
definitely like a, a pragmatic thing. She's like, no, just yeah. kill him. Why, yeah. you know, th- this is beneath us. This is, you know, we, we can just kill him. He'll be done. But yeah, it's the, the Adrian basically goes into the, the, the whole thing after the third war and after the whole blood Knight thing, the, the blood Knights come about because she, she and a lot of others have been training to fight, but like they didn't really have the strength after they'd lost the Sunwell. Cause it, this is an entire race of people who are sick, really badly sick. To the point where Kael'thas started getting, like, not Kael'thas, you know, it is Kael'thas. Kael'thas started getting desperate. He's like, I gotta find a cure for this. I've gotta find a way. And you know, Illidan's like, there's no cure, but there's ways to deal with it. You know, because he he'd been exposed to the Arcane, you know, centuries ago. I mean, before we all. And Liadrin, keep in mind too that Liadrin at this point she felt almost overwhelmingly guilty about everything that had happened. She felt guilty that she was unable to protect. You know anyone or anything she felt guilty about the fact that she couldn't use the light anymore she felt guilty about the fact that she didn't die when all of this was going on like she was one of the people that lived yet she you know she could have healed people but she couldn't and she couldn't understand why she couldn't and the light had pretty much just abandoned her and she felt terrible absolutely terrible so in these you know months and years that followed when Kael'thas was entering into that whole um, alliance with Illidan Stormrage and everything that went on with that, she knew about it. She knew that he he had reached out to Illidan, of all people. Um, She was one of the few people that knew, actually, that there was an alliance thing going on. Um, She knew about the whole fell magic thing and the mana tapping and all of that stuff, the stuff that the Blood Elves turned to to kind of keep their power um, and keep themselves from falling to this whole sense of um, addiction, like succumbing to that addiction to magic that they had and, and turning into a wretched or whatever. Um, but she was kind of wary about it because she wasn't sure what the fell magic was going to do to everybody. And she didn't necessarily trust it. However, because she was so good with the light before, because she was a high priestess like way back when, um, because she was so good with the light before and because she was so dedicated to protecting her country and because she had gotten so good with the weapons and everything, they came to her and they said, we want you to found this order. It was Ramath that summoned her. Um, and Ramath pretty much told her, he said, look, your life is led by extremities, whether it's like the priestess or the warrior. And I think you need to strike a balance between these two paths and I think you need to guide the way for everyone else to follow you and he was the one who kind of helped her found the Blood Knight Order Um, all of this is in Paragons like I said the short story is called Blood of the Highborn it's very good it's it's like really good and it really kind of goes into Liadrin and who she was and how she came to be who she was Um, I don't know. The The thing that I found interesting was that despite the fact that she was able to pull the light from Moru and, and work with it and everything, it didn't bring back that whole compassion. It didn't bring back that whole, it was just a tool. The light was just a tool to her at that point. And it was kind of a tool to all the Blood Knights at that point. Did you guys ever play through the Blood Knight quests? Yeah, so? I actually pulled oh, yeah. the Paladin back in the day. Same. Uh, I don't remember what like level I stopped it at, but I I got out of Silvermoon. You guys remember well, those first quests though, where you like had to go oh, yeah. do all of mm-hmm. this stuff. What did you if think about that of... initially, Joe? Let's just say it lended to the credence that the the Blood Knights are a very complicated, very nuanced order. <laughs> like uh, mixed feelings is really the best way I could put it. Like it was it was cool and interesting, but always felt a little off if that makes sense i don't know it's hard to put into words what about you rossi uh i think basically it's hard to come how i'll just come on and say it the blood knights were evil sadistic people they were they were cruel they were vicious they reveled in power they straight up knew they were torturing a living being for the power within it and they didn't care um there's stuff like they, they reminded me a lot of the sith from from star wars and that there is very much that whole idea of you know, Liadrin herself even said things like, why am I, why did I spend all those years like trying to follow the will of the light? Why did I spend all those years trying to, to serve? Uh, I could have been compelling it this whole time. It's actually really similar to the, the dark shamanism 
that we see. Yeah, very similar. Uh, in that it's it's like you can access the light by making yourself an empty vessel and letting the light fill you and letting you know the light work through you. Or you can grab the light like a like a recalcitrant puppy and shake it by the back of the head until it does what you want. And that's what the Blood Knights were doing. Uh, were. I, I'm stressing were, not are. And I, I said they were evil. I'm not saying they are. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely stuff that happened in Burning Crusade that changed well, the order. Yeah, and, and but the thing, the interesting thing about that, like, and the reason why I think it's complicated is because if you look at all the 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 knights that were, you know, beholden in that first that first batch, right? The Adrian's one of them. The Adrian founded yeah. the order, and she was one of the ones. She was straight up, you know, ripping power out of Muru, whatever he felt but, about it. She didn't care. Oh no, no, I, I'm not. I'm not disputing that. But I mean, it's it's interesting that they're sort of engaging in the same crimes and, and same travesties and, and horribleness that they themselves lived through like it's this weird elven cycle and i and i noticed it with this and it's the same thing with like the nightborn and everything else like i don't know what it is about elves it's like this happened to us in the past eh, we'll just do it it'll be fine it'll be different this time it's not gonna be not gonna be that bad we can we can make we can make this work it's fine but like it, it was just very interesting and then to see what they became after it and what they are now uh it's it's intriguing to me it's it's it's, it's complicated and interesting like i it's one of the reasons I really like Leandrin is because she started in that really hopeful place, went to this like super dark place, did some really terrible things thinking she was doing it for, you know, good or proper or justified reasons and then learned better. Right. Like that, that's, that's the cycle. And I, I sort of dig it. And it wasn't necessarily a sudden change of heart either. Cause I know that like in burning crusade, it seemed kind of out of nowhere, like, Leadrin went to um oh my gosh Adal she went to Adal and said hey things aren't great we need help and they were like oh yeah there was a prophecy about you and all this it it wasn't just the fact that Kael'thas showed up and took off with Moru or anything like that that caused her to have this change of heart she was kind of doubting the path that she was on before then. Um, one of the other points in the story that they talk about uh, I know we mentioned Galel her apprentice he she wanted him to be a blood knight he was applying to be a blood knight but he was of he was one of those elves that was having a really tough time with the whole magic withdrawal thing like a really tough time with it and he was starting to kind of wither away into that whole wretched state partially because of the fact that he couldn't seem to balance the whole get the magic that you need thing but also because he kept saying that he could hear Maru's voice in his head mm-hmm. and it was driving him slowly crazy. And in the end, Liadrin, the, spoiler alert, <laughs> I mean, this, this story has been out for a while, but in the end, Liadrin actually had to kill him. She had to put him down. And that, that he, was like he, part of the catalyst. Yeah. He, yeah, he attacked her and she was forced to defend herself and she had to put him down. And after she did that, it kind of left that question in her mind whether or not what they were doing was actually the right thing to be doing. And I think that's part of part of where that whole kind of questioning thing came up. Because she wasn't 100% on board with everything that Kael'thas was doing. Like I said, the whole fell magic thing. Yeah, that was that, a big thing. Yeah, she wasn't really cool with that. She saw how it was necessary, but she was kind of like wary of what it would do to the blood elves in general. Anyway, blood of the highborn paragons. A, I think you can still get more too. Yeah, there we is... don't have time to go into all of it. But like the whole <laughs> Drakon, you know, Darkon Drathir comes back. He's he plays a role in the story, and he's undead, of course. At yeah. that point, he's been brought back yeah. from almost from like a, certain, a lich. Yeah, yeah, like a lich, that kind of thing, and um. It's a good story. It's a novella. It's not like a full-size novel, but it might as well be because it's actually pretty sizable. Um, the other thing that's in Paragons is I believe it's all the leader short stories yes, al- along with uh, Blood of the Highborn. And it's worth it to pick that up just for Blood of the Highborn. Um, it's nice to have like, you know, editions of the leader short stories that aren't necessarily on the website. And- but, and it's relatively cheap too. It is available, like as Anne said, it is it is a digital only. Mm-hmm. But Amazon does have it for the Kindle, and there are a couple other places you can find it um, as well. And it's relatively cheap. It's well worth reading. Yeah, 
it's it's definitely worth picking up. Mickey Nielsen is also the person who was responsible for the short story Unbroken, which is still one of my favorite short stories ever. Mm-hmm. Um, that one was about Nobundu and the development of the Drenai Shaman and everything that happened after the fall of Shatrath. And it's so good. If you haven't that read was... that one, go read that one. <laughs> Fun fact, that was the uh, that was the inspiration for Loader starting to RP in World of Warcraft. Oh, yeah. It was a very good short story. Anyway, so Mickey Nielsen is very, very good at writing. And this was probably one of his better works. It was one that people were waiting a really long time for. So it was nice to see it come out. Um, I would definitely recommend, though, picking that up if you haven't picked that up. And hopefully that kind of answers your question a little bit or maybe raises some more if it does raise some more go pick up the book seriously that novella is just worth it it is worth it okay uh next email is from i believe julian although i forgot to put the name on here because i'm bad okay this one says hey folks long time time no talk slash question after listening to the last lore watch can you folks elaborate on a couple of things regarding the dragons first where are all the nether dragons now? I realize a lot were killed during Cataclysm, but they seem to have not been mentioned or seen in a long time. Who leads them? What are they up to? Second, where do the storm dragons fit in? Are they dragons that have somehow been shaped by the presence of Odin or Helia? It's a flight of dragons we have little to no info about. They just show up. For that matter, why were they not proto-drakes and instead look like titan-modified dragons? Um... Rossi, do you want to talk about the storm dragons? Well, I mean, we don't actually get a ton of them. Havi describes the storm dragons as being born of the gods, which the Thorignar, yeah, the Thorignar, which is they're the brood of storm dragons that you know they swore fealty to the Titan Keepers. Uh, Nithog didn't do, agree with this, and he refused to be their subject. So it feels like there's the Titans did something. Possibly Odin did. We don't know for sure. We know that something happened to this group of dragons and most of them decided to serve the, uh, the Titan keepers, except for like Nithog and his brood who are like, who rejected the you know idea that they'd have to serve anybody because they were so powerful. Um, but yeah, we don't, other than that stuff, we don't specifically know. We don't know exactly what happened. Although we don't know when feels... they were made. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah. Sorry. I was going to say, it, it feels interesting to me that, isn't that one of Odin's like first sticking points was the whole raising of the dragon flights to begin with caused him to kind of get a little like specifically the yeah. dragon. Yeah. He did not like the aspects at all. He didn't like them at all. But it feels like, it feels like to me that Odin or Havi had a hand in, in the creation of the storm dragons. And it was just like, you know what? They're actually doing things. Okay. But I can't admit I'm wrong. So I'm just going to go make my own while I'm over here stuck in the middle of nowhere. I got nothing else to, to me, do. To me, it mountain. feels kind of like a spite maneuver where it's like, yeah. yeah, we'll go ahead and create these things so that they will serve us, not so yeah, that and they, they serve... will be in charge because that's our job. But yep, so and they that serve, they serve the Vicro. Yeah, and they and... serve the Vicro, which is like, you know, Odin's favorite people. You notice the Vicol take dragon taming well beyond the Storm Drakes. The Vicol and Northrend are taming dragons constantly. Mm-hmm. The Proto Drakes and everything, yeah. So possibly one of the reasons it annoyed Odin so much was that he saw the proto-drakes as ultimately servants, mounts, you know, for his chosen people. And that's what the, the storm drakes work to do that. They're actually, they made a deal and they swore fealty. Whereas the, the aspects are, if not the, the aspects aren't above the Titan keepers, but the Titan keepers are, they're not really working for them either. They're empowered to, you know, Titan Keepers had opened a way for the Titans to empower the Aspects and the Aspects to do their own uh, thing. Tyr pretty much empowered them to do what the Titan, like the Keepers and the Watchers couldn't do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they weren't part of the world. They, you know, they were shaping it, but they weren't of it. There's a lot of interesting stuff there, but we don't know specifically what the deal with the Storm Drakes is. What the deal was the Storm Drakes? Sorry. <laughs> I feel like uh, it's. I feel like part of it was a spite move on Odin's part. Like it was he, just. Nobody hates Odin more than I do. Yeah. Nobody. <laughs> Odin, Odin used me as a Pokemon for an entire expansion, so nobody hates Odin more than I do. But here's my thing: he wasn't wrong. No? Nothing he said about the dragons was wrong. They did fail. They did. One of their one of them fell straight into old god corruption. That doesn't you know. Had he not thrown a little hissy fit, then a lot of the stuff that does happen couldn't have happened. So Odin's not in the clear here. 
but making the aspects might not have been the best move. Tyr might have been wrong. And more importantly, Tyr did pull an Endron around him. Mm -hmm. He was the prime designate. Tyr didn't come to him. Now, Tyr was renowned, you know, far and wide as being the most powerful of them as a warrior. He was even more skilled than Odin. That's been said. I mean, that's in Chronicle. But still, Odin was prime designate, and Tyr utterly ignored him. Just end running around and went straight to the other. He kind of pulled a Sargeras with the Pantheon thing. And uh, Odin is sitting there like, you know, you didn't even talk to me about this. And you just spring it on us and everyone's going to go with it? No. that's it, We're the Titan Forge. We're the ones entrusted with this responsibility. You can't just give it off to some lizards. And so I, I get where Odin was coming from. How Odin dealt with that was possibly the worst, most I can't use the right word because it would start with bat and rhyme with hit. Um, but just crazy, <laughs> crazy way to deal with it. I'm going to make him, I'm going to make my own floating castle. So I don't have to see you anymore. Like he threw a fit and had he not um, everything that happened with Loken and Yog saron wouldn't have happened, which makes me think somewhere in there is a little bit of Yog sarans influence. Do you think I mean, it would make sense? Yeah, I think so. Because it worked perfectly, didn't it? I mean, you can't, you know, he couldn't, you know, Yogg can't destroy Odin. Odin was powerful enough to, to go toe-to-toe with, uh, you know, with uh, Ragnaros. He, he can't just wipe him out. He's got to get rid he's got to get him out of the way. So he makes him get himself out of the way, you know, because whilst he's powerful, he's also going to ego just as big as that power. You get the feeling Odin has kind of forgotten he's the servant. No, and he thinks the, he's I, the dude in charge. Yeah, and that's there's a lot going on there. But yeah, in terms of dragons, the the storm drakes. I mean, part they're... of the reason that Tyr, part of the reason that Tyr decided to do all of this with the with the aspects and whatnot was because the Titan Forge weren't exactly doing their jobs. Well, it, they weren't it, doing anything it, about Galakrond. Yeah, wasn't the whole point was it to them that was like, oh, well, so what if it's doing that? It, 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 we'll see if what it's doing in a thousand years. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, and, and Tyr so... was like. No, this is bad. Like you guys don't understand how bad this is. Why don't you? Why aren't you guys paying attention? All of this is terrible. Fine, I'll go talk to the big lizards. They'll help me out, and they did. And they impressed him because they were really passionate about helping him out, and they did a really good job helping him out. So he decided to go ahead and reward them and give them the jobs that the Titan Forge didn't necessarily feel was like worth it or whatever. And then Odin got ticked off. So. I don't know. There was a lot going on there. It, it, a lot of the stuff between the Titan Forge was just a lot of drama. <laughs> there's actually, yeah, there's some stuff we still like, the relationships between Titan Forged and generations of Titan Forge and what's going on there. There's a lot that we still don't know. Yeah, it, it's kind of like this soap opera having, that we haven't having, seen all of yet. Having met Odin, though, I have no problem believing that he just managed to irritate everybody under him to the point where they're like, oh, yeah. "F this, I'm not gonna." Yeah. I'm not even showing up. You do whatever you want, you jerk. <laughs> jerk. Seriously, Odin. He's oh. the guy that insists that they should have a potluck at the office. Like, but doesn't everybody should bring, bring something. Anything. And then he doesn't, or he'll just bring like a bag of chips. <laughs> like, he just wants uh, Odin, a free lunch. He just doesn't. <laughs> like, Odin is that guy who gets you to do a job for him. And yeah. it's a way more complicated job than you think it is. And you end up working forever and going through tons of overtime. And then he just takes all the credit for it. Takes the credit for it. Yeah. So um, the storm dragons, we kind of talked about them. But what about the nether dragons? I don't think we've really addressed the nether dragons in a very long time because they're kind of isolated and kept lot. on Outland. So there's not, I mean, like on Azeroth, the nether drakes... I know that at least one made it to Azeroth. I believe Tiragosa took one or two to see Malagos and snap Malagos out of the funk that he was in. And that's what set off the whole thing with the Nexus War. Thanks, Tiragosa. That was real well, smart of you. It got really weird. Like, he, he ate yeah. them. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. they, they they did a thing where they were, like, they were, they were going crazy over the energies and the Nexus and... You know, Malagos was trying to figure out what they were and he was acting all nutty and they attacked him and he basically devoured their essence. And that's what snapped him out of being crazy, except it may not have snapped him out of being crazy so much as pushed him into a completely different kind of crazy. Here's the fun part. Well, the the way the nether dragons were created, they were black dragon eggs that were infused with 
the power of the nether like the energies from the nether from the twisting nether just directly infused with it when Dranor went explody mm-hmm. so these are just unstable black dragons essentially that have been irradiated with twisting nether juice and Malagos made a snack out of them so yeah I don't think anywhere in that equation eating them was really the best idea <laughs> No, no, and I think, and I think the most information we've really gotten in regard to any of that is from the comics, right? Like, I think that's the yeah. most of that we've really gotten anything about the manga. another dragon. Yeah, yeah there the was manga, a manga. Yeah. There was a manga series with Tiragosa, and oh, I forget the name of it. Um, Jorad it Mace. Real... Yeah, it had Jorad Mace in it and Tiragosa, and I'm going to find it real quick here because it's what's it called Nexus Point or something? Or uh, something well, no, like there that. was there was like two of them. There was uh, Shadow Wing. It was a Dragons of Outland series. And there was like, I want to say that there was two of them. There was Shadow Wing and then there was Nexus Point. Okay, but maybe yeah. it was just the one. Maybe it was just the one. Yeah, I think it was just the one. Yeah, okay. So Shadow Wing is the one where she takes them back to, takes another dragons to the Nexus to show them to Malagos because she figures that this is this really extraordinary thing that Malagos would be interested in. Wasn't it more than that? Wasn't that because like the nether dragons were the nether dragons like started as like enslaved creatures. Wasn't the point of bringing them to the Nexus to sort of get them infused with enough arcane energy to break free? No, it was that they would die. They would die. That's right. Yeah, they were, they They were dying because they didn't have enough power to sustain themselves. So taking them to the Nexus was an attempt to keep them from dying. Because right, they figured yeah. if they take them to the Nexus, you know, there's the energies and stuff there that'll keep them sustained. But also, uh, Terragosa really didn't want them to go down Deathwing's path, obviously. Because mm-hmm. um, these were initially, they were black dragons. So they have that dangerous kind of potential to just go completely nuts. Um, so she was hoping that maybe they would align with the Blue Dragon Flight. They could be useful allies, all of this other stuff. Malagos saw what they were doing and was not happy about it. He was also not happy that the Nether Dragons, I believe they started proclaiming that they were the embodiment of the Nexus. Yes. Which they kind of were a little bit because they had been infused with the energies of the Twisting twisting Nether. So it it wasn't an incorrect assessment. But Malagos decided to just kind of like absorb them absorb them and their power and whatever weird crazy black dragon stuff was residual inside of them so yeah that might have had some of the reasons like i don't i don't know if malagos was particularly sane um i know that all of the lore stuff states that malagos came back to himself and came back to sanity and he saw what mortals were doing with magic and how reckless they were being with it and said no we're gonna shut all that down we're just gonna shut it all down and that's when he started trying to move the ley lines to the nexus to keep keep them out of mortal hands essentially keep the mortals from doing anything terrible with it um, yeah but we now know that that would have killed Lazaroth. yeah oh absolutely and it's Without also question. like there's a point where I think that we use the word sanity a lot, but one of the first times I read it, one of the things said it restored him to lucidity mm-hmm. instead yeah. of sanity. Yeah. And I think that's a good way to put it. He, he stopped being the kind of insane where he couldn't focus and he'd just drift and he'd mourn and he'd, he'd think about all his dead kin and miss his dead mate and all that. And he turned into somebody who could focus and think again, but his thoughts weren't any better. Like, no. here's a guy who's, he takes a consort. When that consort dies, he decides, well, I'll just make you my consort. Like, that's not the kind of thing, like, a sane dragon would do. Even, like, that that's like that's a Deathwing thing. Mm-hmm. That's a, I'll just force you to be my consort. Like, what? That's that's a Deathwing thing. And I think it's interesting. The dragons, the nether drakes that went to the Nexus, one of them was Zizoraku. Uh, he actually survived. He's the one that's in uh, Night of the Dragon as well. Uh, Zizoraku is the one that they use to try and create the super uh, the one, what's her name? Synthario. Sinestra, right? Sinestra, Grim, Grimba, yeah. You're talking about the Grimbatal stuff, right? Yeah, that's yeah. The, the one they use to try and make the Twilight Drakes is Zizoraku. And the Twilight Drakes were made out of that. They took so it's really weird to think about that Twilight Drakes exist because someone took a Nether Drake and exposed Black Dragon Eggs to Nether Drake energy. 
when nether drakes were black dragon eggs that were exposed to the twisting nether in the first place. So we basically kinda, gave them a double dose. Yeah, we're kind of getting weird here, guys. Yeah, the twilight dragons were like nether drakes on steroids, basically, um, and had none of the good. <laughs> um, the nether drakes, the nether drakes on Outland were cognizant of where they came from a little but they weren't necessarily I mean they didn't all have they weren't evil or anything like that they were just black dragon eggs that had been infused with the twisting nether and when they hatched when they came to be they kind of formed their own little society over there on Outland um, we helped them out there's this whole quest chain out there in um, oh my gosh Shadow Moon Valley yeah is it Shadow Moon Shadow Moon yeah Shadow Moon uh, Valley. Well, it's like the no, ruins no, of Shadow no, Moon. I don't think it's Shadow Moon, is it? No, no, it is. You're right. It I is. Was thinking, I was thinking it was Netherstorm, but that's a different group. It's to the, it's to the southeast of Shadow there's, Moon Valley. There's a group up there in Netherstorm. Actually, it's kind of fun because if you go questing up in Netherstorm, you'll run into Tiragosa and Jorad Mace. Like, they're both up there. Um, they're the ones that lead you through the quests out there. And the quests out there, I believe they take place before she decides to take anyone back to Malagos. Mm-hmm. Um, it's after that. It's like directly after that that she decides to return with them. So there's like these little tie-ins that were in there that maybe not a lot of people notice. But also these, the manga book that came out, it didn't come out until way, way, way later. It should have come out like right in the middle of Burning Crusade. And it wasn't released. I, I think it was released in Cataclysm. I'm not sure. Um, so that one's another one by the way if you're looking for books to pick up that's that's another one that's worth picking up just to kind of get a clearer picture of what went on with the whole nexus war thing what went on with malagos and what's going on with the nether dragons um today the nether dragons are they're still on outland they're still out there um they haven't tried to establish any kind of presence on azeroth they don't really seem to be too concerned with azeroth at all it's just kind of a live and let live thing i don't I don't think that I can't remember the last time. I don't think I've ever seen another Drake on Azeroth besides the ones that you know we ride around on because we did the quests out there. The ones that the ones that came to the Nexus all died except for Zezaraku, and Zezaraku dies in Night of the Dragon. Yeah. So all the Nether Drakes that were on Azeroth are dead. Um, the original flight of the ones that we see when you do the quests to get another Drake, those guys are still you know hanging out in uh, Shadowman Valley. That's that's where they lived. So the ones that are still there are still there, and the ones that came to But they don't have, like, it's not like they have a leader or an aspect guiding them or anything. An aspect. They're they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, they got a mom. But, I mean, they're doing what they're doing. That's it. Um, So, yeah. I don't don't know. Well, okay. Is the mom the proclaimed leader? I don't think they really have a leader, per se, do they? They don't don't present, like, normal dragonfly. The Netherwing dragonfly. The Netherwing Dragonflight, they call themselves the Netherwing Dragonflight. The major leader is Neltharaku, and then the secondary leaders are Karyanaku and Mordenaku. They apparently use Aku as their last, you know, little end of name thing, the way other dragons do. I, they feel like a cobbled together flight. Like they have a little bit of memory from being black dragons, but they don't really understand any of it. So they've sort of just, they're trying. Uh, the first of them was Barthamus. And uh, apparently he's still alive. Like it's first of the Netherwing dra- of the Nether Dragons, but so he was like the first one that hatched. And he's uh the one that you get them the eggs from. Yeah, he's the one that gives you the yeah. mount, doesn't he? He's in he's in chat. Yeah, yeah. He, he claims he's the first Nether Dragon born, so he's the one that you know gives you the egg for your own little uh, mount. And uh, the other like the brood mother is called Dreadwing, and Karanaku is the matriarch. I don't know the difference, but you know. The Karanaku might be the mother of uh, Dreadwing, so but Dreadwing is the one on the Bladed Edge Mountains. Uh, so there's they're they're across Outland. I don't I get the sense that they don't have the slightest idea. Oh, there's Nether Spite. I forgot Nether Spite. Nether Spite's in Karazhan, though, so I think that that's like a special instance. Yeah, but he's there. He's the only other one I can think of on Azeroth. Yeah, yeah. and we kind of make quick work of him, unfortunately. Yeah. The others, though, I mean, it, de- it definitely feels like the Nether Dragons really are just kind of trying to be dragons without the parents or anything to raise them, to teach them how to be. So they're just sort of like, if you took a bunch of kids, it's weird because they're kind of like humans that way. 
uh, humans in, in, in uh, World of Warcraft are basically like a bunch of Vrykul kids who had the curse of flesh and who got basically stuck, you know, without their parents to, to try and, you know, raise themselves as best they could. And that's some of what's going on here. Also, I find it really funny that the Nether Drake mounts from Shat all have names. Like they're all names. Oh yeah, no, they all have names. They'll talk to you. Yeah, that's. I think that's. I think that's crazy. You you actually you choose one to to be your friend, mm-hmm. and then you can go purchase the rest of them. But the one that you choose to be your friend, they all have like they have things that they say to you, and then and then they're your mount, and you keep them forever. That was one of my favorite quest chains in Burning Crusade. I just I loved the whole concept behind it and I loved um I loved the end of it. I really love the end of it too. Anyway, um I think we have time for one more question. And I'm this is a really lengthy email, so I'm going to kind of like summarize what's going on here. This one is from Ciopilos on Etrig who says, Hello guys, just had a tinfoil hat moment and I was curious what you thought about it. We know the Emerald Dream is supposed to represent the primal, pure version of Azeroth, untouched by mortals in the beginning anyways. It's also associated very heavily with the life domain on the cosmic chart from Chronicles, and it's supposed to be a quote-unquote backup of Azeroth's original form in many ways. These are all assumptions about the Emerald Dream, but yeah, you've got kind of got the gist of it there. Um, okay, so Ciopilos continues. So what if the Shadowlands has a similar concept in regards to death? What if the Shadowlands is sort of simulation or starting point for Azeroth following a re-origination sequence where every living being on Azeroth was killed. A sort of literal backup that creates new images or quote-unquote saves as mortals change the lands. What do you guys think about this? There's a lot more here that they go into, but it's a very lengthy email. What do you guys... Do you think the Shadowlands is a backup in the same way that the Emerald Dream was kind of a backup? No. No. No? The Emerald Dream was made by Titanforged. Mm-hmm. It specifically was made by Freya, um, connecting up with Azeroth to help Azeroth basically its dreams, uh, the the dream essence of the sleeping Titan. The Emerald Dream is like as t- Azeroth's nappy time, uh, and the Shadowlands is not. The Shadowlands is completely outside of anything the Titans would ever do. Uh, it's it's not their mate creation. I think it is completely something other. Um, I think it might be a consequence of Azeroth. Mm-hmm. Like you have this great life thing trying to be born, drawing in all this spirit energy into itself, uh, changing the, the, the place around itself, creating its dreams. And it would have, you know, obviously its dreams and its nightmares have a realm to, you know, of their own. Uh, but Titans can die. Titans can stop existing. Titans can never be born in the first place. I think all that positive potential creates a reaction um they deform the they deform existence to the point where worlds form around them so i think the shadowlands is probably something like that i don't think it's it's like the emerald dream and it's not a backup for anything and also like to add on to that as well like reorigination in general has been described not necessarily as the destruction of all life but returning it to a different configuration so we don't know if that actually like obliterates something and sends it to the Shadowlands uh, versus tearing it down, reconfiguring it, and making it reborn again. Like, I mean, I, you know, I guess you could argue the Shadowlands would be like the recycle bin. Maybe. Like when you when you got done reoriginating, you could put everything in the, you put everything in the recycle bin, and it's like you know that's how you get rid of it. I don't know, but. But I think it doesn't feel like something the Titans would make. It does. It feels like a consequence, not a. Yeah, and I and I think you're I think you're on the right path though too. With and this is something I've thought about a lot. Like you have this giant entity that that is essentially consuming spirit energy. What happens with the energy that it can't consume or doesn't consume? Because it can't. A living organism always hits like tipping points, right, or evolution points where it stops feeding for uh, whatever duration it needs to. So what if this is where all that excess goes? Like what if what if that's where all that sort of leftover yeah or uh, material even, goes? It could even be just where it puts waste. Yeah, that too. Living beings create waste. I mean, if you're if you're drawing all the spirit energy, is there a form? You know, maybe the, there's a shadowlands because you're not tapping into the shadow void death energies. You they, they got to go somewhere. You're not eating them. They can't stay on the planet. Yeah, know? or it's or it's just the reaction of an incom- a completely inefficient process, right? Or even an efficient process is going to generate waste. I mean, look at plants. You know, you you want to get chlorophyll to keep your plant alive. 
uh, you get, it, it, it takes in, you know, it creates oxygen. The oxygen is the waste product. Uh, it just, that's what happens with the process. There's waste. Uh, it just happens in this case, the waste forms the Shadowlands. I don't know. I mean, this is, I don't think that the Titans made the Shadowlands though. And I think the Titans let me, absolutely made the Emerald Dream. That's, that's a stat. Let me just ask here, just for clarification purposes. Are you saying that the Shadowlands is basically. It's the Ibulet of Spirit. It's where all the world soul poo goes. For lack of a better word, yes. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't have said that because that's gross. But then again, you know, a plane of death is pretty gross. I just, you know, putting that out there, that's weird. But yeah, um, it is weird, Not but entirely I mean, out it. of the realm of possibility, but weird. I mean, you think about it, like what we've seen in the Shadowlands, it's like it's an almost exact mirror of, of the, the Emerald Dream. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, like what Joe said, it, it's... It's not like a it's not a safe state of any kind. It's not saving anything. It's not preserving things. Just just look at the Death Knight. Look at the Death Knight starting zone, right? Like look at look at that area. You go into the Shadowlands there. And when you do, it is not an idealized version of what the world is around you when you're in the living world or the actual Azeroth space. It's not even a decrepit version of it. It's, it's just a shadowed just, reflection. It's a shadowed reflection of it. It, it like Light casts a shadow. Shadow exists. You are walking through that shadow when you are in those lands. So, yeah, I think Rossi's on the right path. I think he absolutely is. Here's my question. The Emerald Dream was created by Freya. It is unique to Azeroth, correct? As far as we know. Are the Shadowlands unique to Azeroth? I think they are because we've seen enough of how Odin interacted Mm. with them. Technically... Technically, if we want to go like argue with game mechanics, no, because when we die and we go back to our bodies, we're traveling through the Shadowland. Like that's that's what we're doing. Yeah, but so that's on game other mechanics. planets, we're still do- sure. But I mean, it's a it's a convenient way to explain that like each world has a little bit of something like that as well. Well, yeah, okay. but I I think there's a difference between the Shadowlands and a world, you know, a shadowy place that has death energy. Sure, every world might have one of those. But they might, might have like know- a spirit realm or whatever. But I mean, but think the Shadowlands themselves, the specific Shadowlands, are pretty linked to Azeroth, as far as we can tell. Maybe, unless unless there's a, a factor where it's like like the Light and the Void, and it's a byproduct of that in some manner, where its entire universe spanning, where the Shadowlands is its I own think, realm, its own its own realm of reality. I think when you're when you're going into the universe spanning part, that's when you're actually into the Death Realms. Like I think you might be onto a point where every world might have their own Shadowlands. But I feel like the Shadowlands are like the shore, if that makes sense. Like you go to the beach. The shore before you hit the ocean. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Go to the beach. You're on the shore. That's the shore is re- is related to a specific place. You are at this beach, but the ocean is the whole ocean. Unless that's what happens when the ocean touches those points of life in the universe. Maybe. Yeah, and it's this is you yeah. Know, we're we're in, we're in big maybe territory here. Oh yeah, super. Uh, but, oh yeah. wait, hold up. Okay. So life or existence, things, the universe as we know it, mm-hmm. was created when the light clashed with the void, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So were the Shadowlands created when life clashed with death? Did life clash with death or is death I don't come know. Out <laughs> light and void made the universe. And it feels like sometimes light and void didn't expect anything to happen in the universe. No. And then it did, and now it's like, what? What is all this stuff? Like, what are these things that can force the light and the void to their will? Ugh, and they all have free will. This is so confusing. Yes. And the dead ones are even worse. We know how the void is terrified of death, but the light can just destroy dead things. It's antithetical to them. It can just wipe them out. There's like a, there's a weird spectrum here. We, we don't really have time to talk about it, but one of the interesting things about Liadrin is that now that she's basically gone on to be like a full-fledged paladin again, like not just a blood knight, but yeah. she's calling on the light. She and Turalyon have an interesting argument, discussion, whatever you want to call it, in, if you do the uh, the war front. If you got Turalyon on the Alliance side and Leadrin on the Horde side, Turalyon's like, how can this be happening? How can a Horde paladin exist? How can you touch the light at all? I haven't seen this. Please tell yeah. me more. Uh, it's, it's, he's just, he's straight up, he sneers at the very idea of a horde paladin. Mm-hmm. And he calls her misguided. Like he, he flat out, he's, he's practically like rude to her. 
I mean, granted, you know, they're fighting. It's a war. Being rude is not the worst thing you can be. But it's still, it's interesting. He's he's dismissive and condescending to her on the very concept of the light and the fact, the idea that she even thinks she can be a paladin and yet be fighting for the horde. He straight up like and says this, and uh, that's interesting. She doesn't back down from it. By the way, she isn't like coward or anything like that. She's not, you know, bring it. Let's see what you got. Uh, but she calls upon the light all during that fight, and the light does what she wants, and she's not forcing it to do it. You know what I mean? See, I like, did she... that. I did that with Liadrin, but I didn't catch the back and forth banter because I was too busy beating her to a pulp. <laughs> yeah, you were probably fighting her with Magni. Wasn't it Magni? I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It wasn't. It wasn't Tural. Like Turalion wasn't there, so yeah, I didn't they... see the banter. I didn't see that banter going on. When when they put Turalion on the alliance side, she and Turalion get get quite argumentative and heated. You know, it's not like just you know the Magni Leadra stuff is just her saying you know you know you're gonna lose and him going kiss me ours basically. He's not. He doesn't care if she's a paladin. He just wants to, just to win, you know, so it's different. But Ooh. yeah, it's, it's Keep in mind, too, that Turalyon has kind of like this almost idolized view of the light. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and you start to see that fracture and splinter a little bit on Argus when he's talking to Velen. Because he says, when he's talking about, you know, the Void Naru, he's like, well, Zero never said anything about that. And what Velen said was there were a lot of things Zero didn't tell you. And, and that was like the first time that we kind of got the hint that maybe Turalyon didn't have the whole picture, and maybe he still doesn't. I think Turalyon definitely has the the old school Warcraft two view of reality here, and Liadrin is much more. Liadrin came through the Scourge. Uh, Turalyon was off fighting his thousand year war, you know, against the Burning Legion. He didn't see the Scourge, you know, he didn't experience it. He knows it happened. But he didn't live through it. He doesn't understand what that all entails. He never lost his faith and then came back to it from a different path either. Turalyon was a priest who took up being a paladin because he was directly asked to by uh, Archbishop Benedictus. Not Benedictus. Uh, the guy who just, the one who's dead now, but he's still a, a, a priest. You know the guy I'm talking about. The one who Which started one? the paladin order. Oh, uh, foul. Foul, yes. Uh, Foul yeah. asked Turalyon to give up being a priest and pick up a sword. He was like, you know, you'll be perfect for this. And Turalyon doubted it. And he was like, I don't, you know, you can't put me in a group with like Lothar, like Lothar's chosen. You can have me fight. Like, I can't do that. And he was like, yeah, you can and you will and you'll be his second in command and it'll all work out. And it did. And Turalyon, you know, from that moment where he picked up Lothar's sword and called the light to destroy the horde and it worked, has never doubted it. He's never doubted anything he's done since. He's been completely devout. Yeah. And it's interesting to see the two of them, you know, come at it from completely different perspectives. So That's that doesn't cool. got much to do with the Shadowlands, but no, but I'm going to have to like keep an eye out in the war front. Cause I want to see that banter now, <laughs> now that you've mentioned it, I'm like, I've never seen that. I haven't. Cause yeah, I had Magni with me. Um, all right. Well, that's going to go ahead and wrap us up for the show because we're kind of running over on time here as we usually do. Um, again, if you have an email for the show regarding any kind of lore from World of Warcraft or any of Blizzard's other titles, you can send that to podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Make sure you put Lore Watch in the subject line so that we know that it's intended for the show. Also, for you guys, listeners of Blizzard Watch, Audible's offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. You can download a bunch of different books. They have thousands of titles available. Um, you can sign up for that by going to blizzardwatch.com slash audible. Uh, one of the books that they have is it's kind of actually referencing stuff that we talked about today. There's a book series that came out called Dawn of the Aspects by Richard Knack. And that's the one that talks about Galakron and the formation of the aspects and everything that went on with that. Um, it's definitely worth picking up and checking out. It's narrated by Scott Brick and it's one of the free books that you can get on Audible if you want to pick that one for your free 30-day trial. Or there's a ton of other Warcraft books that are also available on there as well. You can pick and choose those. You can pick one of their thousands of other titles by going to Blizzard Watch dot com slash audible 
and every sign-up helps support the show and everything that we do. Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch, and your continued support means that this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your question answered on a podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. Final thoughts, you guys. We're going to go back to this Shadowlands thing because I'm I'm kind of curious now what you guys' thoughts are on this topic. If the Emerald Dream was created by Freya, if the Shadowlands were created by an entity as well, who do you think would have created them? Do you think it was an entity or do you think it was something that just kind of came to be? So I don't know that it was necessarily created by an entity, but I think there's definitely a ruler there. I mean, we have reference to the big billing thing that came from the mist that Odin made a deal with and gave his eye to. We have reference recently to Wamsamdi of having a boss. Uh, and we know very clearly that Wamsamdi's realm and temple touches the Shadowlands, his little waiting room area, the other side notwithstanding. Um, so I think there's something big and powerful and scary there. I don't know if it necessarily created it or if it was a by uh, a byproduct of being created when the Shadowlands was born. Rossi, what do you think? Well, we know that uh, Helia made a realm for herself in the Shadowlands, uh, but I definitely know that before she made that realm, she was reaching out to entities in the Shadowlands. One of them is powerful enough to make a deal with Odin. That's where Odin, in fact, got the ability to create his own version of the undead. The Valkyr were created with knowledge he got from the Shadowlands, from an entity that was there. Does that mean that entity made the Shadowlands? I have no idea. Um, that entity might be the Shadowlands, for all I know. The Shadowlands might actually be an, you know, an, an intelligent place. Mm -hmm. uh, there really is... If I'm going to speculate... I don't think anyone made the Shadowlands, but I think the Shadowlands has something equivalent to purpose. Well, I mean, if we Ew, think about it in the what way... What if the Shadowlands is like its own world soul? Or the uh, like, or bigger than that? The opposite of a world soul. The like, opposite of a titan. If, if you create like a living being, that living being draws life, and that's a kind of death. Well, here's my things. thought on this, and this is why I ask this question. Remember Galakrond from, again, the aforementioned um, Dawn of the Aspects? Mm -hmm. He became this creature of death that, like, consumed other proto-drakes and grew pieces of proto-drakes on himself. And nobody really understood what he was doing or what the purpose of it was. But the other thing that nobody understood or even, like, the book didn't go into it. And I'm still asking this question to this day. Where did he come from? Like, why did that start happening to him? Something happened that caused him to do that. Because he wasn't like that forever. So was it death magic? Was it some kind of entity? Did he get touched by the Shadowlands? Was he possessed by something? I don't know. Um, but the idea of the Shadowlands just sort of being there, where somebody can reach out and touch it, or, you know, call the entities in it and that kind of thing. I want to know where that place came from. Like, where did it come from? Was it created or did it just sort of appear? And if it just appeared, what does that mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a lot, there's a lot you going on there. Read, you ever read Bloom County in the old days when they were Absolutely. Having... I have a bunch of the books in the living room. I was just thinking of that line. Was it made or just happened? Made, yeah. just happened. It's kind of like where we are with this. Yeah. All right. Well, that wraps us up for the show. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. And we will see you again in two weeks. <laughs>